This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. People are dealing with an affordability crisis. And, uh, you know, Olivia Chow doesn't even tell us how much she's going to increase on property taxes. When we having, when people are facing an affordability crisis, a lot of people bought homes recently. Interest rates are going up all the time. They're having a tough time even keeping their homes. And Olivia Chow doesn't tell you if it's going to be 15% or 20%. I've committed to have property tax rates at the rate of inflation because I recognize the affordability crisis that it has and the impact that it has on people's lives. That was Anna Bailao the week before uh, Toronto's municipal by-election. Welcome back to Toronto Today, 640 Toronto. Uh, She said, I'll keep taxes at the rate of inflation. And it would have taken some digging and doing, and again, as I like to say, looking under the hood of the car, but she made that commitment to do it. Yesterday, we find out that taxes are going to be about seven points above the rate of inflation right now. We're at about 3.12%. Things have cooled since last year when then-former mayor, or then-mayor and now-former mayor John Tory, put through a 7% tax increase. 1.5% was that additional city building levy. Um, so w- w- we've got a different different set of, set of tools that we're dealing with now heading towards 2024. And this could be a similar budget to a year from now and then another year from now. And we don't elect another mayor until obviously the fall of 2026. Joining us now on Toronto Today is the aforementioned Anna Bailao. It's great to have you back on. I appreciate the time. Good morning, Greg. Well, you know, I play that clip and you're like, oh, did I say that? Absolutely. You said that. But I'm, you had to go around during the campaign and you were very clear. And you and other candidates pressed the then front runner, Olivia Chow, several times about municipal property taxes. You did. Josh Matlow even did. Brad Bradford did. And you didn't get an answer. And we finally got our answer yesterday. Uh, yes, we got our answer yesterday. And I think that's the reason why so many people pressed uh, uh all the candidates and came out and talked about the tax increases because we knew that this was going to be a difficult budget. It had been a difficult budget already for the last few years. Uh, the, the municipalities have to balance by their budgets by law. And, and the way that it had been balanced the last few years, it was with a lot of uh, support and cooperation from the other orders of government. I mean, the previous, previous mayors had secured you know, great amounts of money from previous government. You know, in 2021, I remember it was, 1.6 billion, you know, 22 was 850 million because of the pandemic, because of the pressures that the city is facing, the services that, you know, over a billion dollars that are really provincial and federal funded planning, uh, uh, funded programs that the city is paying for. So we all knew all this information. It was all out there. We knew that it was going to be a different, difficult budget and uh, the need for a new deal uh, was imperative. Uh, and and the mayor acknowledged that and started working on it right away. She she mm-hmm. as soon as she got elected, she did. She started working on on the new deal and got the gardener and and the DVP uploaded as I as I had suggested. Yeah, which was an Im- important first step. I always said, you know, we need a new deal and here's an idea needs to start with this, and the conversation needs to continue. And that's what we need in the city of Toronto is is to tackle that one billion dollars that is really the responsibility of other orders of government. We need to continue that conversation. But we also need to, to, to see how we're delivering services. Are we delivering in the most efficient and effective way? Taking in consideration that the people are having this affordability crisis, you know, this this increase is going to affect everybody. People only see it as a first step as, oh, this is going to affect whoever owns a home. No, it will affect everybody, Greg, because everybody ends up paying property taxes, either through their rent or through uh, the property taxes directly. So this is on top of, you know, mortgage payments, rent payments that have gone up, uh, gas payments that have gone up. So 
people are feeling it right now. And, and I think as the process unfolds, because this was just the beginning, um, you know, if I could give some advice is, is that the, the you know, city officials and, and, and the mayor really have to come through and explain, you know, what are they doing different? What have they tried? What were the difficult decisions that were made? You know, yesterday we heard, oh, we already looked into savings and efficiencies and there's over 600 million. What is that? What, what happened? What decisions were, were made? What were the difficult decisions? So that when we, you're presenting residents with a 10.5, maybe even 16.5% increase, they understand that the, the decisions were done, the hard work was done, um, and and I think that it is, it, it is imperative. You yeah, like because I, I and I think this number was sort of you know floated out there prior to, as you note, the DVP and the Gardner um, being uploaded back towards the province. And I think for at least a few days, maybe it wasn't even that long. At least we all thought, "Oh my goodness, thank goodness that's happened," because we'll avoid a massive uh, property tax increase. It's almost like. That didn't transpire like there was meant to be savings, a clear hundreds of millions of dollars per year of savings in that transaction. And a lot of people are wondering yesterday, well, where did those savings go? Yeah, exactly. There, there's, there's definitely savings. But, you know, again, it, it was the beginning. And and I and, and the city did say that when when this deal was was struck, there was uh, the Gardner and the DVP. There was more money from for, for housing from the province. And they did acknowledge that, that it is the beginning. Uh, but the budget did increase. They did increase significantly as well. I mean, the budget was $16.2 billion last year. This year, we're looking at a $17 billion budget. So it is a bigger budget. So why was mm. that, that increase uh, done is way above the, uh, the inflation rate. So I, I think it is imperative that over the next month, as the budget uh, is discussed, Right. As the budget is fine tuned and is at, at council and, and the mayor presents uh, further changes that we understand what are the decisions that are made, because this will have uh, a, an impact in our city. You know, it, it's yeah. it's small business are going to be affected. Right. The commercial rate is also going to be increased by nine percent plus the building levy. Like all this is going to have an impact on the lives of, of uh, Torontonians. It, the, tr- the cost for the um, refugee and asylum seekers seems to only be going one way. Paul Johnson, the city manager, labeled it as seven hundred thousand dollars per day. Thus, the two hundred fifty million dollar per year ask. If I told you that a year ago, there's no way you would have said, well, that's the number that it's going to be per day or that's the ask. We'd have to go to the federal government. It is a federal responsibility. And I get holding their feet to the fire. But the, the costs have just ballooned astronomically, have they not? They have. They've been ballooning since uh, the the, uh, the beginning of the pandemic because of the changes that had to be made in the shelter system. So before the pandemic, Greg, it was two thousand uh, dollars an average to have. Uh, it was four thousand. Sorry, to have yeah. somebody in a, in a shelter bed. It went up to six thousand, and the numbers have skyrocketed of refugees that are actually in our shelter system is now over forty percent of the people using our our shelter system, and we're now over ten thousand beds in the city. You know, the, the highest number of shelter beds anywhere in, in, in the country. And again, these are the, the services that the city is paying for that are really the responsibility of other governments. And the conversation needs, needs to happen. You know, property taxes were never designed to be paying for these kinds of services. So that con- these conversations need, need to continue to happen because this is not sustainable to continue to, continue to pay for these services from, uh, from property taxes. But in order to either negotiate with the other orders of government or to go to to the residents of Toronto and ask for the the largest increase, 
it is imperative, I believe, that you show what you've done internally. How have you come up to this number? You know, what have you done to to be efficient and effective on the delivery of your core services? What are you doing? What were the decisions, the difficult decisions that you also had to make uh, to to make sure that you you have the credibility to go and ask for that money and and ask residents for a substantial increase that is going to have a great impact in their life? Anna Bylaw is our guest on Toronto today. Before you go, we've documented um, what a close one-two race it was when when it was all said and done in late June. You had people probably coming up to you in June or soon after the election result came in and said, hey, um, Anna Bylaw, I like you. I voted for you. I know you're having people now say, I wish you were the mayor. I did vote for you or I wish you were the mayor and I wish I had gone out and voted that day. What's that mean to you seven months later? Because like I told you, I I think you ran a campaign that was more transparent, had more integrity and it connected with people. It just the numbers didn't turn out at the end. Um, Greg, I, I, I put myself out there. I put my plan out there. I thought I had a, a good plan. The election happened. The electorate decided. And I think for me now, it's about the success of the city. And so we all need to come together and to give you know our suggestions and our contributing contributions. Um, I'm, I went off to build affordable housing, something that I'm very passionate about, and I, and I'm really enjoying doing doing that work. And for me, it's about the success of the city, and I'm rooting for the success of the city and its residents. And and so uh, I will continue to do everything I can and continue to speak on these on these issues to make sure that that happens. That that that's how I feel. <laughs> long long way away, but would you rule out running again two and a half years from now? Oh, my God, it's two and a half years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have plans for the summer of 26. I just want to see if you do. I've got them written down uh, have, on a yellow pad. Plans. I don't even have plans for this summer. <laughs> I don't even. <laughs> well, you'll have to knock on. So if you're knocking on the same amount of doors, uh, something has gone, uh, gone terribly wrong as you did uh, this past spring. I appreciate you coming on uh, and uh, and chatting with us. I always do. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Greg. Anna Bailao joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. This is a little bit of a, of a surprise. And usually a lot of these policies get settled in the summer. But there's a new policy, the Toronto Catholic School Board. They're going to take uh, some books away by non-black authors. Of Mice and Men would be one. Uh, Huck Finn. So the Mark Twain books are coming out. We, I remember reading Tom Sawyer, and there's words in there when you're in third or fourth grade. I didn't read Steinbeck's uh, Of Mice and Men. Um, but the N-word's been in our, how would I put it, our our airspace. At least it was, I always point this out, I'm a kid born in the early 70s, grew up in the 80s. It was in our airspace. In fact, during the pandemic, we're watching a lot of movies together because we're shut in, and I show my kids do the right thing. I love Spike Lee movies, and I and Black Klansman we watched as well. We just watched that for the second time a little while ago. Um, and they kind of, they have that different reaction to the N-word. They're like, should I laugh? Should I pretend I didn't hear it? Do I instantly get offended? Or is this about art? Is this about the context of the art? And we know there's many musicians right now Black musicians that put the N-word still in their songs. And there's always great debate in all communities, including the black community, as to whether the word can have its proper application in context. Uh, so the Toronto Catholic School Board says it's out if it's a non-black author. It can stay in if it's a black author. Um, to discuss and uh, and see where, where it's all going, Carl James, um, professor of education and uh, the Gene Augustine Chair in Education, Community and Diaspora at York University, joins me now. Carl, I really appreciate you coming on early this morning. Thanks very much for making the time. 
Thanks very much for inviting me for this conversation. Absolutely. Um, what do you make of, of the policy? If you gave it a read over, um, does does what the Toronto Catholic Board here doing is doing make sense, especially to sort of keep temperatures down in classrooms, hallways, lunchrooms, etc.? I, I think it makes sense. And it also referred to, for me, it, it reminds me of how do we deal with it? Notice what you were saying just now. Yeah. When when you're saying the, your your children want to know, should we laugh? Should we do this? In, in, so the in the absence of of the the type of clarity that these that students need or young people need or anyone needs in, um, for understanding how to use the word, when to use it, how to react to it, how to understand it. In the absence of that, you you need to do something that will remove that from from the, the, the difficulties that students have in the learning process. Is there, to you, is there a protocol and a time when you understand its usage um, in, in colloquial, uh, in, in 2024 colloquially, and then there's a time when you're like, does, is, it, is it sort of each case is its own unique? When you hear it, when you see it, you get it sometimes as to what it's being used for, and other times you're like, no, 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 that's no good. Uh, absolutely. However, when we're thinking of the classroom, when we're thinking of the learning process, when we're thinking of students not having the time or the energy or the opportunities that student, teachers might have to really unpack and work through some of those things. And when we think of the implications that, that the, the, the word might have for the learning for some students, and I think all students, not just some, then you you have to remove that at least for now. Do you get that sense of uncomfortability? Because um, I have when I'm among black friends of mine, black colleagues, and they're using it rather pejoratively. They're using it pretty frequently. I know I'm not about to, um, but they do. Um, does that ever make you uncomfortable? Or do you say, no, if you take ownership of the world word in the right way uh, and you're using it black colleague to black colleague, it, it's got its place. You know, we can make assumptions for some black colleague. This is not good. It's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. For others, it might be. So therefore, since we don't know, the context is so complex and different. So it's easier to say, okay, Let's pack that that situation so that we can get on with our conversation, get on with our relationship, get on with the learning that we're getting from this situation. And, and because you don't constantly want to, to to make this something that's making it difficult for you to have an important an, uh, learning experience or for you to have the kind of conversation you're having. Or also build relationships you can build. You're not quite sure how people are going to interpret what you're saying. Um, can you, it, when it ends up being in art, like I mentioned, whether it's a Spike Lee movie, whether it's in a rap lyric, um, do you say the same, or or do you wish artists would just use it a little less? I, I think for some people it might might be yes, the artist should use it less or should not use it. For others, it might see the artistic aspect of it. Again, it's it's all what what people bring into that 
that understanding and to that interpretation. So again, we just can't generalize. That's the mm. problem here. And just simply say, it's okay, it's cool. We just can't. Um, I don't know whether you see it as much in the university level. Again, my kids are in high school in grade 12 and 10. I worry sometimes that we've taught we've taught them a lot about differences in culture. And yet I, I think that's important. It, it's, it's, it's better done than when I was in high school, for example, and maybe when you were in high school, for example. But I worry everything can be contextualized about race now. And I worry sometimes we don't just look at the character of people, the things they say, the things they do, and we judge and say, you're this because of where you came from as opposed to the things you're doing now. Can I make that case that that, 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 that we've got to find that balancing act again? Yeah, and, and you, you know, we just can't assume, yeah, because this is a black person that they share the same experience as the other. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the word that you use is contextualize. We need to constantly remember the context in which we are operating and the context from which people are coming and the context that might influence the experiences mm-hmm. that people derive from the from the world in which they're associated. So, so it's constantly having to do that work. And not to make assumptions and generalize that this is it, and to also bring yeah. my own experience to the to somebody else's without knowing that it it aligns. Hey, I appreciate the conversation, and and thanks for coming on with us. Hopefully, it won't be the the last one we have about important issues, Carl. Really uh, respect uh, uh, your take here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for inviting me. Have a very good day. You bet. Carl James is a professor of education at York University. So just to reset, in case you're joining us in the last 45 seconds, the Toronto Catholic District School Board has banned reading the N-word, has banned saying it. Not a book ban per se, but again, it's they're not going to ban um, all books with the N-word in it. They don't want any teacher, black or otherwise, saying it out loud. And I get that. But I also would say, what do we do with um, art here? Can, for example, can a Spike Lee movie have a non-black character say it? John Turturro plays a Latino, right? He's Danny, or he's Italian, uh, Danny Aiello's son, and he's working in the pizza joint in Do the Right Thing, which came out in 1989. Highly recommend that movie. I wish it had won Best Picture that year. I thought it was the Best Picture that year. And and he's he's explaining to Spike Lee why he doesn't think. Guys, Eddie Murphy, Prince, um, Dwight Gooden was a star uh, Major League Baseball pitcher at the time. And he says they aren't, he doesn't think of them as what he would call as the word you would use, the N-word. And Spike Lee's like, they're just black people like the rest of us. Like, it's a fascinating look to say you talk differently about celebrities and you love all these celebrities and yet you're willing to use that word. And again, it's, it's an older movie, but at the same time, I think some of the lessons still ring true today. Would someone say, oh, John Turturro's character shouldn't use that word because he's not black, but Spike Lee can. I don't necessarily love that. I don't love the idea that you can't put it in your art and say, let's let the audience decide. And like anything else, you don't like it. Turn it off. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, We talked about that a good chunk yesterday about the 10.5% property tax increase coming for Torontonians. Uh, We gave you that number in the morning that bore out to be true. What we didn't know at the time was, I I guess we'd call it a potential poison pill based on the federal government and how they choose to respond, of course, with regard to uh, refugee claimants coming to the city of Toronto. We'll get to uh, some of that uh, with our next guest, but really want to dial in on what's happening right now at the International Court of Justice in the Netherlands. South Africa has put a claim of genocide towards uh, the country of Israel into that International Court of Justice today. In essence, 
A lot like a, a hearing. Um, the prosecution gets to go first. That's South Africa. The defense gets to go tomorrow and plead their case against that is Israel. Uh, so far, there is not a firm statement from the Canadian government on this, but a member of that government uh, put a statement out a couple days ago with fellow MP Marco Mendicino. He joins us right now on Toronto Today. He is Anthony Housefather. Anthony, it is great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time. Uh, thanks as always for having me, Greg. How closely are you watching? I mean, it's an obvious question. How closely are you watching the proceedings today? How emotional are these proceedings to look into today in the Netherlands? I mean, I think that these are very emotional. The word genocide is a very, very triggering word. I mean, it, it is a claim that Israel is attempting to actually wipe out um, a group of people, being the Palestinians or a part of that group. Um, and and it, it is it is hard to even talk about it because of course Jews were the victims of the biggest genocide in world history at the Holocaust I and mean, the word evolved from the Holocaust and to claim that the only Jewish majority of the state in the world that was attacked by a terrorist organization and has long of war is committing genocide would essentially mean that pretty much any war history was a genocide I I, I find it just appalling um, that that this is happening. I, I, I really do. Uh, you know, I feel for the people in Gaza. I believe that, you know, it, it's very fair to criticize the way Israel is, is handling the war to some extent. You could claim that, you know, that it, although it targets targets, that, that too many civilians have been killed, but claim that Israel is deliberately and intentionally trying to kill Palestinian civilians when Hamas deliberately and intentionally intends to kill Israeli civilians as part of statement and Israel is responding. I mean, it's just, it, it's horrendous. And, and Rosalie Abella wrote a wonderful article in the Globe and Mail a couple of days ago, the former justice, Erwin Kotler, the former attorney general, has written uh, something in the National Post yesterday and today in the Jerusalem Post. And I think they answer these queries or these questions very, very well from a legal standpoint. I, and I'd make think two things about what you said. Israel's proportionality uh, and Israel's tactics can be um, at times analyzed, at times questioned, at times judged to be not harsh enough, just harsh enough, or too harsh. That's all fair and good. But we've got actual genocides going on on our planet right now. China and the Uyghurs, um, Ethiopia and the Tigrayans. You've got potential genocide happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And South Africa didn't feel fit to take this to the international court. Like, that's that's what I think gets people the most is like Israel is is bound for fair criticism. And sometimes that criticism is justified. But that's turning a blind eye to actual genocides happening on our planet right now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think Israel is subject to a double standard at international organizations on a constant basis. You see, you, know, you have UN commissions where Israel is the only permanent agenda item. Solutions are done. Attacking Israel at the United Nations than you have attacking Korea, Iran, and China combined. I mean, there 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 is a limit, and and I think here again, Israel was attacked. If people don't believe that Israel was attacked, if Israel, if people don't believe that Hamas killed over a thousand Israelis, if people don't believe that women were subject to sexual brutality, there was a pogrom that happened on October the seventh, and 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 I see you know people trying to deny that this happened. People trying to put this into context. There is no context. There is no denial. Israel was attacked. Israel faced a pogrom. And Israelis believe that there is an organization right south of them that intends to wipe them out. And now they believe that if they don't do something to eradicate Hamas, Israel itself will be attacked again. 
and more people will be killed, another program will happen. So I, I guess it, it just it's, it, it hurts. As somebody who supports Israel, as somebody who feels a closeness to Israel, as a Canadian who believes that Israel is the only country in, in the region that really shares our values, it, it's, it's very hard to see Israel singled out for criticism like this, and particularly the word genocide. Which, which, yeah. which really means that Israel is intentionally seeking to kill Palestinians and wipe them out. When, when of course, as you know, the population of Palestinians has grown, uh, you know, uh, rapidly since mm-hmm. 1967. It, 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 it's frustrating, and 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 I wish that South Africa had chosen a more constructive way um, to deal with this war. Um, for example, again, as you said, there is fair criticism of Israel, very fair criticism of Netanyahu and yeah. people in his cabinet, but but but. To, claim Israel is committing genocide, it's the same triggering type of word as using the word apartheid. When people claim Israel is an apartheid state, it's a triggering word, and certainly genocide is a triggering word. Anthony Housefather is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. You're in Montreal. Um, the person I mentioned, um, former cabinet minister Marco Mendocino, uh, who was uh, signed that joint letter, is a Toronto-based MP. He's clearly seeing things on our streets right now. We've got highway overpasses blocked and I, I worry these protests have taken a turn to go from, and I'm not justifying it before you, and I have had conversations about banging sticks on glass windows for businesses and screaming at people eating or having coffee or walking down the street. We saw um, a, a skating party for the mayor of Toronto thoroughly yeah. disrupted. What are you seeing on your streets in Montreal, Quebec, in the last couple of weeks? I, I mean, you, you, you've seen Montreal, I think, was much worse in, in Toronto in, in November, uh, in late October, early November. And then it's been better than Toronto. Toronto has probably seen the worst of it since then. But I think we have the same issue in both cities where it seems that police are reluctant to enforce the law in some context. Uh, I don't think it's legal to block the overpass at Avenue Road. I, I don't think that it is fair for people to be constantly um, you know, yelled at and screamed at and have businesses attacked and people inside the businesses and inside the malls, which are private property. Um, and yet police seem very reluctant to actually arrest and crack down on this. And, and that is frustrating because the criminal code exists. There are multiple provisions of the criminal code that would seemingly apply. And yet, you know, once you cross the line from peaceable assembly, which is what's permitted under the charter, subject to reasonable limits, and, you know, a chaotic mob uh, screaming for the boycott of Jewish businesses and, and then going inside businesses or defacing businesses you're, 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 or, or blocking Avenue Road for, you know, for multiple days at a very busy intersection and very dangerously, police should be intervening more. And, and I think also the people leading the demonstrations should want their neighbors and the people around them to be respectful of the cause that they're espousing and, you know, if I'm demonstrating, I, I wouldn't want to, first of all, use words that I know are hurtful, intentionally hurtful to people that don't agree with them. Um, and number two, more importantly, choose locations that are reasonable in context so that I don't disrupt other people's lives and scare them. Do you hear from constituents who may not agree with all of what you believe about this conflict, but they'll say, listen, I'm uh, I, I want to support the Palestinians. But uh, but these rallies are going the other way. They're pushing more people away from the idea of some kind of middle ground here, finding 
the things we agree on as opposed to the thing we disagree on. Are you hearing from people that that aren't just, uh, as I would describe it, pro-Israel, but say we might have some difference of opinion here, but these rallies, I don't stand for these rallies. And if anything, they're hurting the arguments. Yeah, I, I certainly don't expect that everybody is going to agree w- with my position in the Middle East. I think as Canadians, we have a right to reasonably disagree on our positions in the mm-hmm. Middle East. I'm a very strong Israeli supporter. Others could be very strongly supporting the Palestinian cause. I think we all want, in the end, a two-state solution, or we should want a two-state solution where both peoples can live next to each other side by side. Uh, the, 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 the issues of Canada, of course, I think there are people in Canada that would normally you know, support some of the cause that the demonstrations are espousing but are unhappy with the way the demonstrations are proceeding. And that's for sure. Um, I, I think many of my residents are very unhappy with, with, with the way the police have been handling it. They've been terrific, I think, at protecting our buildings, protecting our institutions, doing their best in a very difficult context. But I think the demonstrations are where people are really unhappy with the way that policing has chosen to approach it. And right now, um, I get 158 liberal MPs. Uh, your government has not taken a stand as to whether they back the South Africa uh, uh, suggestion or whether they've been against it. I wouldn't expect, like we said, all 158 people to feel this way. But I'm sure people have looked at your government, Anthony. You've been consistent, but at times, and maybe this is part of the, the moving parts of the of the crisis, is that I've heard Bill Blair say we need to do this. I've heard Melanie Jolie say we need to do this. The prime minister has irked Benjamin Netanyahu once, and then he's irked. There's just been a lot of back and forth. Is that just standard part and parcel of a moving parts conflict, or have there been elements where you like, I'm sorry, we do have to take a stand here more than we have? So I'm constantly pushing, as you could imagine, within the party. So is Marco Mendicino, uh, who's been a wonderful partner in this, and so have a number of others, uh, for us to take stands that are in line with what I believe in. For example, certainly here, not only should we not support South Africa's position, you know, in my view, we should support the United States and Israel in their utter rejection of the claim, uh, where the government has done something, for example, the UN vote that I felt was inconsistent with our policy, I, I spoke out against it, but you also have to recognize that we probably the most diverse car party in the most diverse caucus um, in, in Ottawa. You have people from all sides because we represent all sides of the Canadian population, which in, in a way is a strength and in a way from a communications vantage point uh, causes some confusion sometimes. But, but I, I would also note that in our party, you are able to speak out and speak your mind in a way that I don't think exists in other parties. People seem to think, you know, sometimes I, I, I saw Melissa Lansman put out a statement that the Prime Minister is sending out his members to speak on both sides. No, the Prime Minister has never sent me out to do anything. He's never told me to say anything. He's, I, and I certainly wouldn't do it if, if, if I was told to do it. Um, we, we have our point of views, we have our perspectives, and we're allowed to advance them. And I think that actually is a big strength. Yeah, we, let's, hey, we, we, we wouldn't need a democracy if we agreed on everything all the time. We need a democracy because at times we disagree. That's the whole point. Exactly. Exactly. You elect an MP to represent your riding, and really, you should be voting in elections based mm. on whether or not that MP supports your values and you agree with that MP or you don't agree with that MP. And so, so to me, I think it's great that MPs mm. are, are on either side at least making their views known so their constituents know about what it is they think, and they can reach out to them if they disagree. Thanks for giving us your time today, and you know it means a lot that you make time for our show constantly. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Greg. Have a great day. Anthony Housefather joining us, a liberal MP from Mount Royal.